Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today, we explore America's political polarization. Overwhelmingly, U.S. adults believe our divisiveness is a problem to the future of the country, and increasingly, Americans want their politicians to solve this problem. Today's guest is Braver Angels co-founder, Bill Doherty. Through workshops, debates, and campus engagement, Bill and the Braver Angels are helping Americans with differing political beliefs understand each other beyond stereotypes. The Braver Angels methodology and the skills they teach have the potential of healing our division. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by the Think to Perform Research Institute, an organization committed to advancing moral, purposeful, and emotionally intelligent leadership. Bill, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Glad to be with you. Why don't you describe who you are and what you do for a living? Yeah, so I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota, the Department of Family Social Science. I'm a family therapist, and I do a lot of uh, community engagement and public outreach work and uh, co-founded an organization called Braver Angels, which is trying to depolarize America. And you also are a marriage counselor, is that correct? Yep, yep. My specialty is couples on the brink of divorce. So let's just talk about the marriage counseling for a moment. Uh, What have you learned and how have you grown as a result of doing this for a number of decades? Oh, good question. Yeah, I've been doing this for uh, over four decades And um, I get something out of every relationship with a couple I see. People are very serious about trying to deal with deep relationship concerns. I feel privileged to be invited into the crucible that they're dealing with. And I feel like I understand something about the human condition more. The divisiveness of our country right now is, you know, never been worse than, you know, as far back as the Civil War. Is that an accurate statement? Yes. So right now, we are increasingly living in red or blue silos. Our news information comes from those. Uh, Even uh, our neighborhoods, people tending to live near people who are like them politically. Families tend to go in those directions. So we are increasingly doing two things, and this is what the political scientists have found. One is that our politics are core to our identity, so party identity or if it is a party, it's liberal or conservative or libertarian or you know, progressive, these become core to who I am, defining me in a way that religion often did before. And, and that's newer, correct? Yes, that's newer. Had that never existed in our country? Uh, not, not to this extent. Okay, now people galvanized around uh, you know, abolitionism or slavery. I mean, we've had deep, deep divisions. But in terms of a full-out identity— at least in the modern era, I don't know if you go back to the Whigs or something like that, but in the modern era, since the beginning of the 20th century at least, the political parties had overlap. You had liberal and moderate Republicans, you had conservative and moderate Democrats. And so if you belong to a political party, you belong to a fairly broad coalition that had a tilt, that had a more liberal conservative tilt. And so they were not as ideologically based. But once we got into the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, the Nixon era on, the parties moved apart uh, so that now the most liberal Republican in Congress is far to the right of the most conservative Democrat. And so there's very little overlap. It becomes like divided religions. And so this has become part of our identity. I'll give you a little data point to document this. 
1960, only 5% of Americans said they would be uncomfortable with their son or daughter marrying somebody of the other political party. Inter-party marriage, big deal. Now it's over 40%. That blows my mind. I, I saw that on your website. I think I've heard you talk about that. So one in 20 would have been uncomfortable how long ago? 50 years ago? 1960. 60 years ago. And now it's 40%. Yeah. Yeah. And large numbers in both parties. And when I talk about that publicly, people who see themselves as enlightened, non-prejudiced, they, they admit they feel that way themselves. Do you know what it is for interracial? Yes. It's gone the other direction. It, it was 40% or so in 1960, and now it's down to 5 to 10% who would be uncomfortable, according to what they say, with an interracial marriage. So it's not that our society has become less tolerant overall. We have become more tolerant of racial variation in our loved one area. And you could see it on the street. But we become less tolerant that somebody of the other political party would be sitting across the dining room table from us at mm -hmm. Thanksgiving. There were some other statistics on the website that were pretty illuminating as to the extent of the problem. Could you talk about those? Well, a big shift has occurred in people's feelings towards the other party. So political scientists uh, use something they call the feeling thermometer. How do you feel overall uh, from very cold to very warm towards people of your party and the other party? And so if you go back 25, 30 years, there would be towards your own party maybe, you know, 72, nice, comfortable you know, temperature, and maybe, you know, 52 to the other party. And now people hate the other side more than they love their own side. This is ominous for our country. There's increasing cynicism about one's own party, one's own side. In other words, you may love a particular leader, but think your party isn't loyal enough to that leader. You may be suspicious of your party, but ideologically you're there. So it's not that we love our own side more. It's we hate the other side more. Why is that? Well, the why questions are really the hard ones, right? And, uh, lots of potential reasons. One is in our politics, we've used gerrymandering much more than in the past. And so for our political leaders, they have to cover their behinds with potential opposition from the more radical side of their own party because they're in a gerrymandering district, it's a safe district. So basically your primary election is your election. And they are more apt to be primaried by somebody who sees them as too cooperative with the other side. The passion is on the far left or the far right. Another big one, and this is clearly documented by the political scientists, the rise of social media, that there used to be a few common news sources that people access. Now, you could argue they were, had their own biases and so it's not like there was ever a golden age where everything was objective. But uh, some of us are old enough to remember Walter Cronkite from CBS News. And when he ended his news, he would say, that's the way it is. And we said, okay, it's probably the way it is. And uh, now we have just like television. You can choose your 24-7 news station that fits your prior views. And they want to see something as troubling. You know, so everything is breaking news. And we know from psychology that as human beings, we gravitate, our brains gravitate to the negative because that's probably what gave us survival in the past. So negative counts about three times more than positive in terms of emotional reactivity. So we have TV, we have social media, Twitter, Facebook, and these other devices that feed us two things. They feed us information that supports our own previously held views and values 
doesn't expose us to other information. And it disproportionately feeds us negative information that will create outrage. So we are hooked on outrage. We're hooked on outrage about those other people, the, the other side. Money and politics is another one. So I just mentioned three big ones, gerrymandering, social media, and media in general, and money and politics that has increasingly been focused nationally, uh, targeting a particular politician, targeting somebody on gun rights, gun control, targeting somebody in abortion. So we're, we're living in this cauldron of partisan negativity that has, that's fueled by many forces, such that the 70 plus million people who vote the other way are seen as strangers. We don't share almost a common humanity with them at times. They are not to be trusted, and they are probably either immoral themselves or they support immoral causes. Describe what Braver Angels does. What's the mission? Well, the mission is, uh, we, we like to say it's reds and blues, uh, conservatives and liberals uh, coming together to try to depolarize the country and create the possibility of a pluralistic democracy where we can live with our differences and be productive citizens in this country. It might seem obvious, but why did you start it? Well, there was no big master plan here. It was happenstance. A couple of weeks after the presidential election of 2016, which everybody remembers, two colleagues of mine, David Blankenhorn from New York City, David Lapp from Southwest Ohio, uh, were on the phone talking about the election and how people in their communities were feeling about it. Upper East Side of Manhattan, it was a funeral. In Southwest Ohio, uh, it was hope and change. And they decided on the spur of the moment to get together 10 Hillary Clinton voters and 10 Donald Trump voters in Southwest Ohio for a weekend in December of 2016. Just, we, we have to get people talking to each other. Can they talk to each other? And then they called me, because I have experience in designing group processes, and asked me if I'd like to design it and facilitate it. And so, yeah, okay. Um, I, that sounded a lot harder than Couples on the Brink. And uh, so flew to Southwest Ohio, and we did 13 hours over a weekend with these 20 folks, and it was really powerful. And we decided not to stop there. How did you recruit the 20 people? Who uh, David Lapp, who lives in Southwest Ohio, did the recruiting. He's a red, a conservative, and he then had a network of conservatives. And then he contacted the liberals he knew, the Democrats. He went to the Democratic County Commissioner, and uh, then they recruited people. And so they pulled them together. How do you recruit people who want to go through something like this with an open mind? Because that seems very, very challenging right now. And, and even five years ago, that seems like it would be a big challenge. Yeah, well, we've had over a thousand workshops, both that kind of one we call Red Blue, but also skills workshops and common ground works. We've had over a thousand workshops. So we know something about who comes. They are people who have their own political viewpoints, some very strongly liberal conservative, some more in the middle who are concerned about the country and also concerned about their families and their personal relationships. They are people who are worried about the paralysis of the country over polarization. When you did the first group, could you describe the process that you used? And then we'll get into how that process has evolved. Yeah, so the, the process is one in which you create kind of a venue, a container, that maximizes people's listening to one another and not debating one another. You set a ground rule 
that we're not here to try to convince anybody to change their mind about their core political beliefs. So it's not a place to debate somebody to show how stupid they are or to win them to my side, but rather to explain my views and my values and listen to yours. And so the design has to be carefully constructed to satisfy that. So for that weekend, always beginning with um, introductions and why people came uh, so that everybody's in for what they're here for and they all hear each other. And it was all over the place there, but there were people who said they were worried about the future. These are blues, uh, Democrats who worried about their grandchildren. Some Trump-supporting conservatives saying, we have to get past this complete divisiveness here. A number of people, in fact, said, we have a small town here to run. We have a, we have a hospital to maintain and, and schools to run, and we can't do it if we're just fighting each other all the time. And so that's why people came. And then a series of exercises or activities, a number of which have continued in our other workshops. So I'll give you an example of one. It's called a stereotypes exercise. So each group, reds and blues, go to a separate room and they come up with the top four negative, false, exaggerated stereotypes that they think others have of them and their side. What do people think of us that is not true, is exaggerated? Uh, so for reds, they believe others think of them as racist, xenophobic, uh, you know, homophobic, anti-science, Bible thumpers, anti-woman. Uh, the blues, they believe others see them as big government for its own sake, uh, stifling free speech if it's not politically correct, uh, arrogant and elitist, baby killers around abortion. So what happens is they come up with these separately and then they come together as a group and somebody from each group presents this to the other side. Th these are the stereotypes we, we think people have of us. Here is what we think is actually true, but here's the kernel of truth. Then they process this. And the process question, the key one in this whole workshop, is a two-part question. What did you learn about how the other side sees themselves, and do you see anything in common? And, and reds and blues and pairs process that. They answer those questions, and then they do it in the whole group. What are some of the other things that you do in the workshop to kind of get these groups of people who have opposite ideas or different ideas, opposing ideas, talking and listening more empathetically? So another exercise in our red-blue workshops is uh, what we call fishbowl exercise. And this uses a, an old technique in group dynamics. When you have two groups share a common characteristic, you have one in the middle, so you flip a coin Let's say the reds are going to be in an inner circle in a conversation. The blues will be in an outer circle. And the job of the blues is to listen to the conversation. No interruptions, no verbal or nonverbal communication. Listen to this group of people who are unlike me in some way. And my purpose is to learn how they see the world and to identify anything that might be in common with how I see the world. And so the two questions for the inside of the fishbowl. First question is, how are your side's values and policies good for the country? And the second is, what are your reservations or concerns about your own side? And then the second question is the humility question. Just like in the stereotypes exercise, what's the kernel of truth in the stereotype? This is the humility question. What are your reservations or concerns about your own side? And then when that's finished, they reverse. The in inner circle goes to the outer circle. The outer circle goes to the inner circle. And then you listen to that other group have that conversation. Then afterwards, the processing is the same way as the stereotypes exercise. You process first in pairs, red, blue pairs, and then in the whole group. 
What did you learn about how the other side sees themselves? And did you see anything in common? Now, with both of these exercises, it's really important. People have agreed in the ground rules part of this that they're only going to respond to questions that are on the table at that time. And so when the question is, what did you learn about how they see themselves? Did you say anything in common? The two-part question. That's all you're permitted to respond to. And we trained the moderators to intervene if somebody were to say, well, what they said about their side is, I mean, that's really off, you know, that's hypocritical, or, or they missed that point. You just stop them. You stop them in mid-sentence because they've agreed. We're just going to talk about this. So can you see what encourages is the expression of what I believe are the core values of my perspective and what are the downsides? And then I listen to the other side. Think about the, the fact we never get a chance to listen to a group of people who differ from us talk among themselves, share among themselves, where they're not arguing with anybody. So what's next? You've done the fishbowl exercise. Yeah. You've done stereotypes exercise. Yeah, we have a meal. Um, and then the next exercise, in the, again, this is the all-day red-blue workshop. And we have a whole variety of workshops, but this is our signature one. All day is eight hours? Yeah, seven hours. Seven hours. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, so just to be clear, we have skills workshops. We have all kinds of others. But in this um, seven-hour Red Blue workshop, people break bread together. And we encourage people to sit with people who are different from them politically. And so a lot of what goes on here is just the social time, too. And then in the afternoon, the next activity or exercise is a questions and answers one. So now that you've heard people during the day, you get to frame questions for them. We did this in the initial workshop but uh, not carefully structured enough. So that I thought that yours truly explaining the difference between a question of understanding and curiosity versus a gotcha question, that five minutes of my explaining it with examples would be sufficient for people to get the difference. Well, what happened was we had reds and blues mixed groups, okay, two smaller mixed groups, and gave people a chance to write down some questions and deliver the questions. And they were mostly gotcha questions, you know, some version of, now, given that your guy is a sexual predator, I'm curious about how you voted for him, right? This is the classic gotcha question. So what I realized was this was harder than I had imagined to ask a non-gotcha question. Now what we do is the reds and blues go to separate rooms again, and they have 20 minutes to come up with four good questions for the other side. Questions that deepen, that ask people to expand on something, that ask people how they deal with potential contradiction, and they're curated, okay? The group curates them word for word. Everybody writes them down so that we all know what the questions from our group are. And the ground rule is that you ask the question, you can ask a follow-up, but you can't give your own opinion on it, and you can't disagree. And then that's all moderated. And so the questions go deeper. And uh, then, once again, you process it. The process question then is, what did you learn from this exercise? Because what people, they learn lots of things. They learn about the other side. They also learn how hard it is to ask a good question. And then the last activity of the day is a, what do we do next? What do I want to do personally in my own life to further this uh, idea of depolarizing the country to prevent a potential long-term civic divorce? What do I want to do personally? What could people on my side do together? What could we potentially do together across sides? So everybody gets five minutes to fill that in. We, just, we encourage them to put in at least something in each of those columns. 
and then they share it with somebody individual. So you notice during the day, there's this opportunity for one-to-one pairs, you know, a little more intimate, and then they share in the whole group. And when we're in the whole group and people are processing, we go red, blue, red, blue, red, blue. Uh, then basically that's it. We do a little, you know, please join Brave Angels and we have an evaluation. And then the last one is people go around and answer the question, what are you taking with you from our time? What sort of outcomes have you seen? Seven to 80% of people in terms of the objectives of this at the end report that they were accomplished. Uh, uh, did you learn about the other side? Did you feel understood by the other side? Did you find ways to communicate better? Are you likely to talk to other people in a positive way about this? And we just now have our first formal academic study of this process that's about to be submitted for publication by independent group of researchers. And they found using standard tools from uh, political science that out six months, there's still some effectiveness. And effectiveness meaning? On the depolarization measures. So I'll give you an example. The attitudes, you know, polarized attitudes, how much I hate the other people. They, remember the, the warm to cool yes, thing? Yes. So there's some of these standardized measures. In honesty, at the six month, a number of those fade. So you have a control group, okay? So this is one dosage, but it doesn't, you know, change it forever. But at the six month mark, what they called the behavioral measure of polarization still held strongly. And that is if people were invited to contribute money to different sorts of organizations, including a depolarizing one that worked on depolarization. And the people who went through the workshop are more likely to say, I would donate $20 to that cause. So they, they call that a behavioral measure. Okay. So this is going to be published in a journal. It's done completely independent. It was done with college students. And part of what we learned is, yes, there's some power in this workshop. And we have all these other workshops that people take that we think are added doses. So the next study that this academic group wants to do is to look at uh, not just people who take one workshop, but we have skills workshop, we have a depolarizing within oneself, we have the families and politics, we have other sorts of things. So our current feeling is based on that independent evaluation that we have something, there's some power in this workshop. But given the extent of the outrage polarized messages that come from the larger culture, that one workshop is not going to have a five-year impact on somebody. And so that's one of the reasons we have other opportunities for people. We want to study that. We want to study additional doses, if you will. It seems like there are a number of skills. I, I've heard you talk about different skills that you're helping these people build. Could you talk about what those skills are and how everyday people who may not go through the workshop can start to identify them and, and use them? There are two steps in it. One is connect with what the other person said, connect first, and then share a differing perspective and share it as an I statement. And so what we teach people is to listen and join with somebody in some way. And the two ways you join with it is to say, I get, your, I get what you're saying. If I can find something to agree with in that, that's even better. Okay. Because a lot of, and this is something I've learned from the marriage counseling, 70% or more of problems that couples have, they'll never resolve. You just learn to live with it better. But what people want is to be heard. In other words, this way you're in the world sometimes is problem for me. Okay. And maybe you can't change that in some sort of major way, but I want to be heard as opposed to you blowing me off. And so if people feel heard and then they have something they can agree with, they soften and you're more likely to do it with me. But what we teach people in our skills, and this is something I'm proud of with, with Braver Angels, 
is that when people come and they learn our skills, we tell them expectations to abandon. And one of those expectations is, if I use the skills, that you have to. And so what I say is, if your brother-in-law has uh, never paid much attention to what you have to say, why would he suddenly start using iMessages and active listening because you took a workshop? So in fact, I'm only responsible for my side in this and how I handle my side in it. These skills seem like they're very helpful, not in just political discourse, but in a lot of our lives. (laughs) That's right. But part of what happens is even people who know how to communicate well, give themselves a pass when it comes to politics. We say uh, to ourselves, I don't have to bring my best self, my better angel to politics because it's so darn existential. Where that occurred to me that what I just said was I did a workshop in Maryland and there happened to be like 13 therapists in the room. Okay. Some of my colleagues knew about it and came. And when I asked at the end, what are you taking with you? Some of them said, I know these skills. I teach people these skills, but I never thought to use them in political conversation. That was you just go for the juggler, okay, or get self-righteous. And then right after that, there was a minister who does interfaith work. And he said, so these skills are part of my work, but I've never used them in political conversation. So there's a way in which we de-skill ourselves. We lower our bar of what we expect of each other. Because politics has become so visceral, so emotional, we become gladiators, and we don't know how to do what we ordinarily might know how to do. There are times when I see somebody out on the street or, you know, a stranger, and I can tell that they disagree with my politics, or they seem like they might disagree with my politics. How can I approach them and have a civil conversation or a productive conversation? So I'll answer in terms of people in your social world in some way, okay? Not not a complete stranger on the street. Families are one of the last bastions of political diversity because you don't get to say who your in-laws are or it just, if you think of extended family, you're going to have people who voted different ways. You're going to have people who love and hate Donald Trump, for example, Uh, because that's true in my extended family. And so here's a technique, and that is to ask an open-ended question that doesn't even ask the person to tell right away their own political beliefs. So here's an example. Thanksgiving, in-laws, other people arriving in Minnesota from different parts of the country. And so I will, you know, in a one-to-one conversation with an in-law say, so what are people in your part of the country saying about this election? Or last year, he and I talked about President Trump. He'd expressed, he had voted for him, he'd expressed some reservations. So how is Trump playing in your part of the country this year? And, uh, and that invites the person to be a commentator on a, something political in their environment. That's an example of an entry. And then when you ask somebody their perspective, so it may be around a particular issue. It might be about gun rights, gun control. And so maybe you're not a gun rights person, but you have somebody, you know, owns a bunch of guns. You could wade in by saying, man, we're in a big national debate these days about guns and, you know, with the shootings and all that. And what's, what's your take on it? I know you're a gunner. What's your take on it? And then you listen. You listen and you learn and you probe. Maybe even the first time, 
You don't even share your perspective unless the person asks you. You could be an anthropologist with the people in your life where you are genuinely curious. You've done a thousand over a thousand workshops. That's tens of thousands of people. We have hundreds of millions of people. How do we scale this? Well, since the pandemic, we've learned to put all of our workshops online. So we're learning to use online technology. The other thing I'll say is that we're getting increasing interest from companies uh, for Target. Uh, We did a webinar for 5,000 employees. Uh, We're also getting uh, increasing interest from political leaders. Last year, we did a workshop for members of the state legislature. We had 30 members of the Minnesota legislature. We did a red-blue workshop for the congressional staff members of a Republican and a Democrat from from Minnesota, Pete Starber, the Republican, uh, Dean Phillips, the the Democrat. And we are in conversations with uh, some congressional groups about us doing some workshops there. And one of the reasons why there is interest at the political leaders level is that they're getting the message from their constituents that they have to get past this stuff. When I did the, the, the workshop for the Minnesota legislators, it was right after an election. And when I said, why did you come? A number of them said when they did door knocking, the biggest issue people brought up was polarization and paralysis, more than taxes or anything else. And so they felt like they needed to show in some way that they were trying to address this. If you do this work with Congress at the federal level, how does that work? Is this congressional leaders coming together in in a workshop, going through the workshop and actually participating? Is that how it would work? Yes. We've done it with staff members, and we haven't done it at the level of Congress with political leaders. We've done this with county commissioner-type folks in states, uh, civic leaders. Uh, And what we've learned is that when we have elected officials, we have to modify the workshop because the stereotypes exercise that I mentioned before, where people acknowledge what the stereotypes are of their own side and the kernels of truth about those stereotypes, that's too risky for elected officials. So we do a variation on this that we're able to do in our big, long 13-hour workshop that we don't do that often anymore. But I'll tell you what that exercise is. And that is that in small groups, everybody gets four minutes to answer this question. What life experiences have influenced your approach to politics and the public good. And then they take turns sharing that. And then afterwards, people reflect on what they heard. So that's a very humanizing experience. This is a good time to add something here, lest people listening to us think that you can't be passionate if you use these skills. You can be. You can say that my belief about this is as fundamental as I can get as a human being. I try to live my life this way, and when I see this value violated, I feel angry and outraged. I care deeply about this issue as core to our democracy, as core to us being you know, one nation that works for all of its people. Um, I can be passionate without being contemptuous. If you want to think about who, could, who is that way, Martin Luther King, passionate but not contemptuous of other people. I heard a, a great phrase recently that contempt constrains change. If we go about with contempt for those we disagree with, they are much less likely to want to work with us for change. So I want to underline that you can be passionate, you can be an advocate, you don't have to just uh, say, well, we'll split the difference here, but you can do it in terms of the skills with I messages. You can do it without saying, 
I feel strongly, and what you and your side are doing is such and such, right? That's the attack. And the attack in a face-to-face here is not going to get us anywhere. I had a realization the morning after the latest presidential election. I woke up and it was still unclear as to who won. And my realization was we cannot look to the extremes, the far right and the far left, and demand that they come to us. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is obvious to you, Bill, but it was, I need to, being somewhere in the middle, I need to reach out to them and to welcome them back in and to understand them. And many of the things that you talked about here is explore How did you arrive at that? Why do you feel that way? And listen with empathy. I think that's how we get out of here. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. So I really commend what you are doing. And and thank you for that, because it's incredible work. It really is. It's um, a joyful journey, a difficult one. And I want to stress something I didn't mention before, that a cardinal principle rule in Braver Angels we call it the rule of balance. In our leadership, we're half red, half blue. And so every decision we make of any importance involves half reds, half blues. And so this is the crucible to work out uh, how to do a pluralistic democracy together in relationship all the time. One of the things that we've learned is that the people who are attracted to doing this work, to moderating, to designing workshops, and so on, tend to be blue. Blues dispositionally like diversity and reaching out across differences. And so those organizations, the board, the leaders, they're all blue. And it's very hard to get trust from Reds. And that's one of the reasons why early on, our founders were both red and blue, and we just insisted on that. And that has been some of what has made us uh, successful. Where can people learn more about you and about Braver Angels? Uh, Well, braverangels.org is uh, where they can find out. Uh, They can uh, look me up at the uh, University of Minnesota. And people can support Braver Angels. I know that because I just provided a a small donation this morning. Actually, I I became a member. You you can become a member. So what what does being a member mean? It means you subscribe to our values and you contribute at least $12 a year uh, so that there's some token of some skin in the game. Um, We also have a big mailing list of people who don't want to be members but want to know what we're about. And we're a nonprofit. There's there's more money in polarized issues than in depolarizing. So, you know, money is always an issue. And we're also committed in terms of foundations and big private donors to having red and blue donors and foundations. So this is, we try to really walk our talk. But if I remember correctly, 95% of Americans feel that political division is an issue. And so my hope is that they will get behind what you're doing because you are solving a very critical problem here. Yeah, I always like to say in my career, I've mostly had to do two things. One is convince people there's a problem. And then secondly, to convince them that my solution, (laughs) it would be worth considering. And this is the first one where everybody knows this problem. Bill, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for being a genius. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Our next episode will be the season four finale. Our guest is best-selling author and NYU professor Minda Hartz. Minda and I will talk about the changing workplace. Specifically, we will discuss the future of women at work, a topic that is a lot less certain in the aftermath of the global pandemic. 
To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.